The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live. I'm Lisa Belfast, writer at Barron's. Thanks for joining us today. With us, we have Loretta Mester, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. Welcome, Loretta. Thank you very much, Lisa. Glad to be here. So let's start off with geopolitics. I know that one question so many investors and listeners have right now is, what do you think about the potential implications on the U.S. economy from Russia's incursion into Ukraine? Well, it's really too soon to actually have an assessment of what the implications are going to be. Um, it's a developing, you know, story, if you will. Um, you know, your heart goes out to the people who are having to endure that. Um, in terms of the U.S., but the right way to think about this is what are the implications for the U.S. economy? And, you know, there until more is known about, you know, how widespread the event will be, it's going to be hard to assess that. But we do know a few things. One, it's an upside risk to inflation. Um, we've already seen oil prices move up a lot yesterday. They moved a little bit back down today. We've seen commodity prices um, being affected. And then it's also in the near term, um, a, a downside risk to growth because of the uncertainty that it entails. So, you know, there's going to there's always risks around the outlook. Um, geopolitical risks that are unfolding now are another risk to the outlook. Um, I haven't changed my modal view of the U.S. economy this year, which is that I think the expansion will continue at a good pace, um, but it's still a developing story and we're going to have to wait and see, you know, what the scope scope of the, 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 the invasion is and, and what plays out. You mentioned upside risks to growth and downside, or I'm sorry, I reversed that, upside risks to inflation and downside risks to growth. And the Fed has the, the tough job of balancing those two things. How do, you, how do you think about it now, these balance of risks, as we're already in this heightened inflation period, you know, going into the March meeting where the Fed is largely expected to begin tightening policy? So right now, you know, the economy, both on the inflation side and the growth side and the employment side, we have a dual mandate, maximum employment and price stability. They're all pointing in the same direction, right? Growth last year was five and a half percent, its highest level since 1984. Um, employment, you know, is, is moving at a very good pace, um, 550,000 jobs per month. Um, Omicron didn't really slow down employment growth, even though it was, many of us thought that we might see that. You didn't see that. And, you know, January, you know, the November and December numbers were revised up even in terms of employment growth. So, you know, labor markets are very strong um, by many measures. You know, they're tight. Growth is very strong. And this imbalance between supply and demand has led to very high inflation readings. So, all of those conditions um, really point to the fact that we have a very strong economy 
And for a monetary policy maker, it means that we really need to be removing that emergency level of accommodation that we was very much needed early in the pandemic, but is not needed now. And, you know, our job at the Fed really right now is to reset monetary policy, recalibrate it to the challenges that are in the economy now, and to do so, remove accommodation at a pace necessary to bring inflation under control at the same time, making sure that we sustain the expansion in economic activity and healthy labor markets. And that's really what the, what the, the key thing that the Fed will be doing um, going forward, including you know, the decision at the March meeting and beyond. Some of your colleagues have been expressing um, diverging views about how to go about starting this process. Um, I think it was late last week, John Williams said that policy normalization should begin um, with half point increases for, for starters. And then Christopher Waller and James Bullard have said that they would like a, I think, I'm sorry, a quarter point increase from, from Williams and that half point um, expressed by Waller and Bullard. Um, and now we've got, you know, the, the Ukraine uncertainty that you mentioned. Where do you stand on the size of rate liftoff in March? And also, how important is it for the Fed to have um, some, you know, some agreement among the committee members as you start this process? Yeah, I mean, I think there's more agreement here than maybe the way you're, it's being, you know, reported as 25 versus 50. I think the important message is, you know, there's very much agreement that we need to start removing accommodation and we need to start it in March. And, you know, and it's not going to just be one rate increase, whether it be 25 or 50, it's that we really need to have a series of um, moves to take back some of that extraordinary amount of accommodation that was needed early in the pandemic. Now, you know, I'm, I'm on record as saying that I, I think that, you know, the case for 50, even before the events in Ukraine, really didn't necessarily mean 50 was the right way to start. I, I always think that, you know, you can start with 25 because even if the markets are expecting a move and shift in policy, there's always some, you know, um, reaction to the first move. But it, it's not going to just be one move. I think we should follow with a series of moves after um, that March increase. You know, so in coming months, we're going to need to move the policy rate up again. And at each meeting, we'll determine what the appropriate size of that move is. But then, you know, then it's all going to be driven by how the economy evolves. So, you know, we 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 need to see, you know, my 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 forecast is that and my my you know modal forecast for inflation is that we will see some improvement in inflation in the second half of this year, um, partly because some of that imbalance between supply and demand um, will be less imbalanced, right? So some of the supply constraints that we're seeing in product markets, I think given the information we're getting from our district contacts and also from national contacts is that they're easing a bit. They're still in place, but there is some signs of improvement. And so my expectation is that inflation will come back down, but that's incumbent on the Fed actually taking the actions, right, to remove accommodation. So all those things in play, we're going to have to see how the economy actually evolves in the second half of the year. 
And if you learned anything from last year is that the economy can evolve differently than expected. At the beginning of last year, if you looked at the um, projections from FOMC members, like go back to December 2021, look at those SEPs. That's the, the forecast that we put out, each participant puts out. You know, we weren't expecting inflation to move up as it did last year, right? Inflation is, is very high, very above 2%, right? The last CPI report was 7 plus percent increase. The PCE inflation measure came out today and the January to January increase was, you know, over 5%. So those numbers, right, started increasing last year. And that's when the Fed started, you know, recognizing that this is something that, you know, is much higher than anticipated at the beginning of the year. So, you know, and you've seen that the Fed has changed its policy stance and has already begun taking some moves towards removing accommodation. You mentioned market expectations and, um, you know, some some of those expectations, at least um, as priced in the Fed Funds futures market, have fallen back a little bit um, given the, the development with Ukraine. But markets are seeing somewhere between one and a half, 1.75 percentage points in tightening this year. Um, and that still is is more aggressive than um, than the Fed, at least according to the last summary of economic projections um, that you mentioned. And then I know we'll be getting an updated one soon, but um, you know, how do you square this big difference between what markets expect? Some Wall Street banks calling for say nine quarter point hikes this year. Um, what What's the sort of reality between those expectations and you mentioned the the hot PCE number today, I think it was again above five percent, um, 14th straight monthly increase. How do you square all that with the concerns out there that um, the economy is slowing from lofty levels as it was always going to, um, but that the that your job is trickier now to avoid a recession? Right. So you know we will have new. Um, summary of economic projections coming out at the March meeting. So, you know, we're all in the right now in the process of, you know, putting together those projections um, that we'll be submitting. I don't see that there's that much difference between the market and the Fed. In fact, the Fed communications around, the, you know, our, our pivot in, you know, uh, in the fall of last year, I think was well communicated to the markets. And you saw the markets reacting, you know, when the Fed was in the midst of, the, of, of explaining that we really now need to be removing accommodation. Whether you, you know, how many rate increases you pencil in, the way I look at it is I know that, we're, you know, I, I support moving up in March, even with the uncertainties entailed with Ukraine. And I support, you know, more rate increases in coming months after the March meeting. You know, if we get to the you know second half of the year, we're going to be looking at how the economy is evolving. If it turns out that inflation isn't moving down the way I expect it to, then we would have to quicken the pace of tight of, of removing accommodation. And if it turns out that inflation comes down more than I thought, then we might be able to remove accommodation at a slower pace in the second half of the year. So I think we've got to really be looking at um, be forward looking and also be looking at the data and, and where it's pointing. So the implications of the data for the median run outlook is really what's, and the risk around the outlook are what's going to drive the pace 
of a combination. And you're right. You know, you have to uh, look at, you know, okay, what's the situation and geopolitical situation mean for the U.S. economy over the median run? And that's going to be part of the consideration, too. But at the moment, the main consideration here is making sure we get inflation under control while we sustain a healthy economy and healthy labor markets. And that's what, you know, we're going to be focused on at the Federal Reserve. Just a quick reminder to our listeners to please submit any questions that you have for Loretta into the Q&A box so I can ask her. Um, And on that note, we've got one from Dave that fits in with, with what we were just discussing. Dave asks, in your opinion, what should the Fed's neutral rate be? Oh, in terms of the long run Fed funds rate? Yeah, so I I have two and a half. Um, and that's, I think, the median now in the in the SEP, although, you know, we'll have to wait until March to see if, if those numbers change. So that's where I am um, in terms of the nominal long run Fed funds rate. But, you know, one thing to keep in mind about all these estimates of, of long run interest rates is that, you know, there's a lot of error bands, you know, large confidence bands around those. Um, and the other important point, which was also what drove the FOMC to revise the framework for setting policy, is that if you look over time, that neutral rate has come down um, and come down quite a bit. So I'm at two and a half. Um, and I think that's basically where the median SCP um, participant is as well. Is that really enough, do you think, to bring inflation down from current levels? I, I know the Fed likes to focus on the core PCE, which is running um, a little bit lower than the CPI, but the latest CPI report showed 7.5% right. annual rate. And when you look at the, the meat of the report, um, the details look worse to me because you're, you know, you look at the double-digit increases in basic food supplies right. like flour and meat. Um, you look at a 40% year-over-year increase in fuel. These are things right. that are hitting a lot of households, a lot of small businesses. Right. Um, is a 2.5% neutral rate enough to bring inflation back down to the the Fed's normal 2% target, or are we looking at, um, you know, a trade-off here? Uh, a, a, much longer period of something that is above 2%? It's a really good question. And I think that's what we're going to be calibrating as we go forward, right? The first thing that we're doing, right, is, of course, moving away from that very, very large amount of accommodation that was needed earlier in the pandemic. So that's what the process we're on now. You know, I think my own view is that over time, you know, it's going to be a process we may very well have to bring the funds rate above my long run level, but it's very, very, it's not going to be immediate. You know, that's well out um, in the path Um, may not even be next year. We need that. So again, we have to be cognizant of the fact that we've got to look at how the economy, right. Is evolving and how what's happening right to the economy with respect to both maximum employment and inflation. But I think we have to be willing to say, you know, we're going to do what it's ta- going to take, right, to bring inflation under control and to sustain um, the economy. And, I, and I'm optimistic that we're going to be able to do that. And I think the first step is what's going to happen in March um, with this rise in the Fed funds rate and then subsequent rises um, as we go forward. 
So here's a question from John that connects to, to some of this. He asks if you can explain in layperson language why the Fed continues to purchase mortgage-backed securities um, you know, as we're heading into tightening. Um, the Fed hasn't fully finished the taper. He says he um, has heard criticism of the Fed for continuing the, the purchases in the past few months um, and injecting unnecessary liquidity into the housing market. I mean, it's an excellent question. And I think that that's something that you know, different people can have different views about. I Going back to when we started purchasing assets, and remember it was treasuries and mortgage-backed security, the rationale for the initial purposes was because the financial markets were very disrupted at the beginning of the pandemic, if you'll recall. And so we went into the markets um, pretty aggressively to make sure that the financial markets, that very important treasury market, continue to operate because, you know, having that market melt down in the midst of a pandemic would have been a horrible situation for the whole economy, not only in the U.S., but for the global economy. And there's a big tie between the mortgage-backed security market and the treasury market. So the decision was to, to purchase both of those assets. And then as time went on and the pandemic went on, right, those purchases were supporting the economy. Right. The Fed funds rate had been brought to zero and we continued to purchase um, assets. The amount of purchases once we we announced in September of last year that we it would soon be time to begin tapering those asset purchases. And then in November, the next meeting, we began tapering. And then in December, we we actually increased the pace of the taper. Right. So then the question would have been, well, why don't we just end it? And I, I think the the uh, one of the guiding principles of this whole thing with the asset purchases has always been to communicate well in advance uh, what we were doing. So what happened at our uh, you know meeting, the last meeting was that we announced they're going to be done in March. And I think that was where the committee came out is like that was the better decision there rather than halting them without giving that notice earlier. So that was basically the decision. But, you know, the, the questioner is right in the sense that it is a little bit, you know, we're pivoting and then, you know, what, but the amount that we were buying at that point was small in terms of the impact on the economy. And so that's where the committee came out. And, you know, that all ties into a question of my own, which is, um, you know, we know that market sort of functionality and, and asset prices is not an explicit mandate of the feds. Um, but we know how important it is to the overall functioning of, um, of the economy. And, um, you know, in the past, the Fed has paid attention to the types of tantrums that the market will throw, you know, when certain policies are announced. Um, and I, I wonder this time around, you know, a lot of pundits um, discuss the, the so-called Fed put and the expectation by investors that if things get bad enough, the Fed might um, pull back or slow easing, something like that. And I wonder what you think this time around, given where inflation is, yet given how much more leveraged um, the markets are and households um, you know, are connected to the, the gains in the stock market and the housing market and all that. And I wonder you know, your thoughts on how deeply connected Fed policy has maybe become to, to the financial markets and the housing market, and if you're concerned about that. So, you know, we have a dual mandate for monetary policy, which is price stability and maximum employment. 
And the way monetary policy works, it transmits through the economy through, right, broad financial conditions. And so when we look at sort of what the impact of policy is, right, to, in order to calibrate our policy settings to where the economy is and where it's going, those financial conditions are an important part, right, of what's happening in the economy and, and where our policy is relative to where it should be. But it's broad in terms of broad financial conditions, not one particular market or another particular market. That said, we also want to make sure that we have financial stability, right? Because you're not going to be able to meet your monetary policy goals if you don't have stable financial markets and well-functioning financial markets. And as I mentioned, right, we went in and bought a lot of assets at the beginning of the pandemic because the markets were very dysfunctional. But that was an emergency situation. And right now, if you look at, you know, the, the financial stability report that the Board of Governors puts out and the analysis that's done around the, the reserve banks is, you know, it seems like financial markets are, you know, there's pockets of sort of focus, like real estate prices are high, relatively elevated relative to history. But overall, the financial markets and the financial system appears to be stable and banks are well capitalized. So that's not, you know, top of mind in terms of will it prevent us from having to, from doing what we have to do in order to meet our monetary policy goals. But I do think we always have to be watching um, to make sure that the markets, you know, are well functioning. Um, because that's the way our monetary policy transmits to the real economy. So I think uh, there's a question from Lee um, that I think is a good segue. He asks um, if investors should be alarmed at the size of the quantitative easing that took place in response to the pandemic. Um, he's specifically asking about mortgage-backed securities, um, and it seems like that's a good um, a good question to kind of get into the other part of this tightening cycle we're about to enter, which is what the Fed chooses to do with its balance sheet that has obviously exploded, um, you know, doubled since the beginning of the pandemic. It's now about 40 percent of GDP. And it seems like there are a lot more questions and answers about how, um, you know, it will that, that that part of the tightening cycle will be conducted and what it means for markets in the economy. Can you discuss what you think should happen with the balance sheet? So, yes, you're right. The balance sheet is almost nine trillion dollars in assets now um, because of what we needed to do, um, both to make the markets function early in the pandemic and then to support the economy um, later in the pandemic. You know, we've announced that those asset purchases are going to end in March. Um, we're still, as a committee, um, discussing what the right way of going about reducing the balance sheet. But in January, we released principles that will really guide that significant reduction. And, you know, we, those, one of the important things about those principles is that it, it re reiterates that the Fed funds rate the interest rate is our main policy tool and that the balance sheet, what we're planning to do with that is come up with a plan. It'll be well, you know, announced so that everyone knows what the plan is um, that will reduce that balance sheet. My own view is that we should start sooner rather than later um, and start to do that soon. Um, and I also think that given the strength of the economy, 
and the and the size of the balance sheet and the high inflation readings, I think we can go much faster than we did last time to reduce the balance sheet. If you recall last time after the Great Recession, when our balance sheet also, um, you know, we did add assets during that and bought assets during that episode, we began reducing the balance sheet, but not very close to when liftoff was. We waited um, almost two years after liftoff before we began reducing the balance sheet. And then, you know, the funds rate had already gotten up to one to one and a quarter percent. And then it took two years, almost two years to reduce it. I think we can go considerably faster this time because the, the economy is just in a, such a different place now. You know, inflation is much higher. Balance sheet is much larger. You know, we have reverse repo and repo facilities that will help us um, make sure that markets function and that we can reduce the size of the balance sheet. So, again, you know, the last time we did it was the first time we really did a significant reduction. So, you know, as the Fed is, we're cautious. You know, we don't want to, you know, it's like a Hippocratic oath. You don't want to do more harm um, with your own actions. This time we have that experience, but the economy is in such a different place that I think, you know, my own view is we should start soon and we should go at a faster pace than we did last time. And but again, it'll run in the back in sort of on, in the background where the Fed funds rate will be the main tool that we use to calibrate policy. So two questions on that. First, can you be more specific around starting sooner and going faster? Um, you know, when can you can you give us a, a month even or can you give us a, a dollar amount that you would like to set the pace at? Yeah. So I think, the you know, we've been also announcing those principles is that it's mainly through runoff. And in other words, when when assets mature, right, or prepay in the mortgage backed securities will allow that to happen. Last time we had some uh, limits, right? We put some limits on how much we'd allowed runoff in, in last month. That's the kind of uh, details that we're working through right now as a committee. So we haven't made any determination of what that plan would be. So I can't tell you exactly when it'll start because that hasn't been determined nor the pace. But I do think that we can go faster now and it, and it behooves us to go faster because of where the economy is and how different it looks now than before. The last time we started reducing the balance sheet, inflation was still below our target. Now it's well above our target. So this, you know, reducing the balance sheet will help, you know, reduce accommodation. It's going to be happening while we're increasing the funds rate. So I don't can't give you any details on when um, or by how much. But I do think that, as the principles say, um, a significant reduction. My own view is that over time, as the process gets, you know, underway, and at some point during the, the process, I'd be supportive of selling some of those mortgage-backed securities. We did not sell any last time. Um, it was all held through runoff. Um, but this time, you know, it's important to get back to a primary, uh, tri primarily treasuries in our portfolio, because we really don't want to be allocating credit to different sectors. And I think this time I would support selling some of that portfolio, but not immediately. I think we let the process run um, for a while and then we consider whether we should sell some of those assets. So the, the idea of potentially selling some mortgage-backed securities, 
um, kind of alongside the desire for balance sheet runoff to happen in the background. And I remember um, when Janet Yellen led the Fed, she, she kind of expressed a similar desire. I think she used the term, it would be like watching paint dry um, when, when the quantitative tightening happened. And it wasn't. Um, and I appreciate what you said. You know, there are new um, facilities in place that are meant to kind of prevent some of the chaos that happened last time. But I wonder, given the Fed's footprint, you know, if the Fed owns roughly a third of both the Treasury and the mortgage backed securities markets at this point, how do you let it run in the background, especially if we're talking about potentially and eventually, you know, conducting sales, um, which be, I think that would be a big deal for markets, no? Um, and, and I for think yeah. So your point is, is well taken. And that's why it's very important that whatever we do, we announce it and we announce it, you know, in advance of the action so that the markets have an idea of what's coming. So again, you know, my support of selling some of the portfolio would not be happening, you know, at the start of this process, you know, we'd get the balance sheet starting to run off first and then consider whether, it's appropriate to sell some of that portfolio because we do want to get back to a, a balance sheet that's primary treasuries. One's difference this time versus the last time that also will affect things is that the maturity structure of our treasury portfolio is shorter than it was last time. The last time when we did QE after the Great Recession, we were buying long run, longer term, longer term maturity treasuries. This time we were buying across the spectrum. And so I think that also comes into play. And that's exactly the kind of discussion we'll have in the committee of, you know, what are those trade-offs and, you know, what is, what's the appropriate speed, but running in the background doesn't necessarily mean we wouldn't change, you know, the plan as we go forward, depending on what's happening in the economy. What it means is we'll announce a plan when the time comes of what it is. Right. And then we may change and allow more runoff later on, as we feel the economy and the financial markets can handle it. But again, we'd announce it in advance. So running in the background doesn't necessarily mean like not talking about it or not announcing it. it really means like being very deliberate and sort of telling the markets, this is what the plan is. Right. And, you know, having it being done systematically so that everyone can adjust to what we're planning to do with our portfolio. But again, just as we are with the fund rate, we've got to be willing to sort of observe, you know, conditions in the in the real economy with inflation and with um, financial markets to make sure that, you know, we're setting that runoff plan appropriately, given what's happening in the economy as well. And we have a question from Doug. He asks, with all of this said and, and with these plans um, being formed, what do you think will happen with the housing market? Um, you know, housing prices have obviously really boomed since the beginning of the pandemic, in part because of the, the Fed's purchases, but also because of just some pandemic factors, people moving, things like that from, from cities. What happens to this market? What happens to the gains? Does the housing market, um, you know, give back some of these gains? Do prices slow? Does affordability become better? So it's a it's a good question because you're exactly right. I you know the pandemic and people's preferences for where they live, right, changed quite a bit. We were just talking about that um, before the the show started, right? So what's happening in the housing market and also um, 
related to the pandemic is the supply is not kept up with demand. And so some of the increase, and I would say a lot of the increase in house prices is, you know, demand for different types of housing than before, and also the constraints on supply. And so there's a lot of building going on, especially in the rental market, to try to increase the housing stock. And that's putting upward pressure on prices. Just as it's true in product markets, some of that will be, I think, this year as, you know, supplies of materials for building, um, you know, ease up. So some of that price, you know, change in the housing market, they'll, they'll probably beat down you know, moving down as well, um, although they still will probably be elevated just because there's a lot of demand for different types of housing than before, you know, and, and, it, and when you say about the housing market, you know, what they say, location, 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 I think that's also applies to this, you know, there's the rental market, there's the market for, um, you know, I guess commercial, but for, you know, residents of older um Americans. So some of that, you know, there wasn't demand for that when COVID hit because people were loath to go into those given the, the impact of COVID on some of the nursing homes and the retirement homes. So again, the market's going to play this out and, you know, we're going to see how it evolves and we're going to see how demand evolves. But right now supply is constrained and that's putting a lot of upper pressure on the prices. I think we have time for one more reader, or I should say listener question. Um, here's one from Scott. He's asking um, if you can address how concerned you are about um, the market's increased attention to 70s style stagflation. Are you concerned about stagflation? Well, it's always something that's, you know, in your mind, you want to avoid that situation. And, you know, the economy is just very strong right now in terms of employment growth, in terms of you know, growth, you know, uh, economic activity. Um, and so we're not in that situation, right? We got a very strong economy coupled with very high inflation. And so, you know, the Fed now is focused on getting inflation under control and at the same time maintaining healthy labor markets, right? And continued expansion. And so I think we, that's what we're focused on doing. Um, but you have to, you know, understand that there's risk to any outlook. And so, you know, we talked earlier about the geopolitical risk, right? But there's other risks. We're not through the pandemic yet. And so that's why, you know, we know we're going to be removing accommodation, right? The pace at which we remove accommodation will be driven by developments in, you know, the economy as they inform the outlook and the risk. And so that's going to be the challenge, um, of the year is sort of how do we do that um, to make sure that we're maintaining a, a, a good recovery at the same and expansion, healthy labor markets and, you know, getting inflation under control. I'm optimistic, you know, that we can do that, um, but it's going to take some action on the Fed's part to, to follow through and get inflation under control. Um, and I have one last question for you of my own, given what you know now, would you change anything about the Fed's response to the pandemic? <laughs> well, that, I think there's going to be dissertations, many PhD dissertations written about um, the pandemic. Look, I think the thing to remember is at the beginning of the pandemic, I th and this is hard to remember because it's gone on long, long enough. 
it, there was incredible uncertainty about what the implications would be from the economy, right? At the beginning, it was like most people thought, oh, it'll be over in a month, right? And then uh, the other hand, the financial markets were going crazy and not functioning at all. So that uncertainty around everything, I have to say that the combination of the strong fiscal policy actions that happened very quickly and the monetary policy actions, right, got us to this point. Right. And so given the uncertainties around things, I think, you know, we'll have to wait until those dissertations are written to do the to do the real analysis here. But, you know, you, you look back at last year and it was a very strong economy and we got through the pandemic. Um, things could have been much worse. And now we have challenges this year and that inflation is a challenge. But, you know, we're committed to getting inflation under control. Well, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Loretta, for being here. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. We hope you listen to our next episode on Monday. Barron Senior Managing Editor Lauren Rublin and Deputy Editor Ben Levison will discuss the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Thank you for listening. Be well and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.